You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced and how they overcame it. Stay tuned. Today we have with us Anurag Srivastava, the founding partner of Jungle Ventures and a serial entrepreneur. Anurag is a professional turned entrepreneur and wears multiple hats. He is an active venture capitalist as well as a philanthropist. He has come a long way since his early days where he started his professional career in the technology industry as a salesperson. Anurag has been involved in the startup and tech ecosystem globally. He has played a crucial role in building and scaling companies globally. Some of the companies in Jungle's portfolio include hotel booking platform Red Doors, cloud-based software provider Descara, Interior home design platform LiveSpace and Thai fashion e-commerce startup Pomelo Fashion. Welcome to the Antler VC Cast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've had quite a journey from a computer and hardware salesman to now leading one of the largest VCs in the region. Uh, let's start by asking you about some of the milestones you have witnessed in the VC world, specifically, you know, in your long journey in venture capital over these years. Well, it's been, I don't know if it's long yet. I think we have a very long journey ahead of us. But it's certainly been interesting. Um, I would sort of put it in two buckets. I basically became an angel investor in 2006, 2007. And actually, that's when Indian VC ecosystem was starting, right? I was involved with Excel. 2007 is when Flipkart actually raised their money. So if you look at that 2006, 7 to 2012, those four or five years from our perspective here in Southeast Asia was largely angel investing and sub-tech uh, entrepreneurs, you know, using their own money that they made at Google and with some support from the ecosystem building the company. So part of me was also doing the same thing. So I was a tech entrepreneur myself. At the same time, I was doing some angel investing. But 2012 uh, is when things started to sort of turn around. I think, if I'm not wrong, uh, Grab Taxi was founded around that period. And 2012 is uh, roughly when we did our first fund. It was like a $10 million fund. So we were the largest fund. It's kind of a little bit embarrassing, but that is what it was. And 2015, 16 onwards, I think things really started to pick up. And 2015, 16 is when we did our second fund, which is a $100 million fund. We struggled to raise our first fund, but when we did the second fund, it was supposed to be a $40 million fund and ended up being a $100 million fund. And, you know, if you look at what's happened from 15 to now in five years, seed fund, series A, series B, late stage, global investors, investment banks, you know, a company that's already gone IPO and from this part of the world, etc. So I think it's been an amazing evolution of this space, right? 2019, I think, saw $12 or $13 billion invested in the sort of private equity space. So I think it's been amazing to see this evolution in this period of, you know, sort of last 10, 12 years. Right. That's quite amazing. And I guess 
safe to call you a founding father of of the ecosystem here or one of one of the founding fathers um like if we look forward a bit how do you see the next five years is it is it going to follow uh, a similar path to india or what's the what's kind of a what's your prediction um in the slightly longer term for the ecosystem as a whole I mean, I think the next five years are going to be fascinating, right? Because on Southeast Asia, we've we've got China on one side. There's a lot of learning there. There's a lot of capital coming in. You know, there are border issues going on. And, you know, because of some of the macro changes, I think Southeast Asia will benefit from from that. And then there's a lot of Indian companies which are looking at Southeast Asia as an expansion uh, because they have an offering for this part of the world. We've seen Book My Show, which is an Indian company that we've invested recently you're seeing the VCs from India coming into this part of the world. So I think that benefit of these two, you know, neighbors around us is going to benefit us. But also I think this is the obvious next diversification for a lot of global investors. If you look at our first fund, it was all angels. Our second fund was all family offices and Asian investors. But our third fund, almost 65% of our investors were really non-Asian investors. So we continue to see that trend coming in. And then also from exits perspective, I think we will see its exponential increase in, in the exits that will happen here by form of IPO or mergers and unicorns buying smaller businesses. So it's just amazing to see the quality of entrepreneurial flow. So when you add all that up, to me, I feel the next five years will be fascinating. And Southeast Asia is going to grow through this process faster and catch up and it may be pretty close to you know relatively close to to the other two neighbors and and that will set the foundation for maybe 10 15 years after that what sort of verticals do you see in the next 5 years you know you've uh you've also invested in live space which is uh which started in india but they also here recently um you know these are very interesting sort of platforms that um are in a way expandable from one region to another uh what what are the spaces that you are excited about So interestingly live space idea was actually conceptualized in Singapore but we took India as the the first market so that trend will continue because there may be a founder sitting in Indonesia which thinks there's a problem to be solved in Philippines or Vietnam right you look at red doors our founder came from India to solve a problem in Indonesia if you look at credivo our founder from Singapore went to Indonesia so you continue to see those movements so i think live space is a great example where the idea was conceptualized in singapore implemented in india and now it's come back to singapore and now it's sort of finding its global trend uh, from where it wants to go and even if you look at their investors they've got ikea goldman sachs tpg so it's a very globally set platform from the beginning which is again going to be a trend where immaterial of where the companies are being founded they would want to be category leaders at least in this part of the region but i'm more and more So I'm encouraged to see the founders are thinking global lot more than they ever thought in those days. For us, you know, we look at vertical commerce. You know, horizontal commerce has played out. So we look at, you know, cosmetics, for example, as an area, and we did two investments in that. We look at social commerce. We looked at halal as a space, and 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 so sort of Sharia compliant space, and we've done two investments there. We looked at consumer lending. So we always tend to look at very vertical. and so social commerce ideas from a consumer perspective right and 350 million digital native consumer in this part of the world 
we think a lot of problems will be solved. So that's one area. The second is for us is the whole SME digital adoption, right? And they're very consumer-like. They are businesses. And during COVID also, they've understood the way to survive is to build that piece. We just sold one of our company called Trade Gecko to Intuit, which is like building a, a product for inventory automation for SMEs. So that's an area where I think that we will continue to see. And third is I think that uh, global enterprise tech companies will be built out of that this space. So we invested in a company called Athena. They're in data theft space. And they are selling to you know, customers in Europe. We've got a company called SaltMine where we are you know, completely disrupting the way offices have been designed and maintained and the data related to that for large enterprises. And the company is building the entire tech in Singapore. They're building the entire backend in Vietnam, but their primary market is North America. So I think we'll continue to see those trends in those three major buckets. That's where we invest. <clears throat> That's good. We have some deals coming for you later than uh, seeing definitely similar similar um, trends. I, I wanted to, uh, you mentioned exits before, and uh, that's, of course, been a bit the issue, I guess, in the ecosystem, or at least the perceived issue that there haven't been so many exits yet. But like you said, it takes time for an ecosystem to mature. And, you know, these things kind of follow a certain natural flow. And Trade Gecko is a good example. Congrats on 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 that exit uh one thing i find interesting is is kind of the you mentioned international lp capital coming into the region i've also recently seen international sort of direct investments in the startups a couple of our 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 companies recently closed rounds from like non southeast asia based investors you just mentioned you also do investments in india so how do you see kind of the the geographical thesis for a vc overall like um is it is it broadening that people are sourcing deals uh more globally or at least in 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 bigger regional scope than than before Yeah, so, you know, just to wrap up on the first point on exits, right? I mean, as Jungle, we've had 11 exits, which is by far the biggest, right? But I believe, yeah, we did three exits in 2020, right? So that, and and of those three exits, two are two publicly listed companies, Naspers and Intuit. And one is to a Japanese company with a planned IPO next year, right? So those are interesting to, to see. Some 28 other Exits I've heard have happened where a big unicorn has bought another company. Um, and then you see uh, a Greena and a C, right, and Flipkart making an announcement about going IPO and the laws of IPO changing and the Indian companies can list outside. Companies which are not making profits, you know, can list in certain markets. So I think this is opening up, right? I mean, Google went public in year six or seven and Facebook went public in year eight. So from that point of view, we still have some time. So I think we're doing well there. From an investing perspective, I feel um, people have been tossing between do you make vertical investments and then you don't care about geography, that I want to do SaaS. So I'll do SaaS anywhere or, or I do social commerce and I'll do that everywhere. And then they organize their funds in that structure. Then, Then the other models really you do geography, right? That I do India and I do Southeast Asia or I do Indonesia. And then the third is, you know, I do stage-based investing. I don't care. I want to do Series A. That's that's what I understand. You know, I do growth. So I think that, that the ecosystem is evolving. 
right? The moment you talk about late stage, everybody's there, right? You know, Bessemer will come if they have a software company at late stage. Um, while they have no presence here, they would be interested because that's what they do. Um, but having said that, I think that even you look at uh, seed series A and little bit of series B, people will have to make a choice between you know combining a stage with a geography or combining a vertical with a with a stage. I think it's hard if you start doing all three. Then at some point in time, I think it's going to eventually affect. The, the performance and your own capability. And that's something at Jungle, you know, we're also continuously evolving. Like we looked at, should we build vertical teams? And at some point in time, we realized that we need to build geography plus stage combination and then figure out where do you create the vertical depth? Because no matter what, as a small fund or medium fund or large fund, it's still very hard to be very deep across multiple unless you say, I'm going to do only one theme. And that's not a viable model right now in this part of the world. That's very interesting. I like the way you put the geography stage. And because one thing about this region is they tend to say go super local, but yet think global. And I think that's, like you say, it's evolving. How much of it do you think has to do with this year and what's happened and the way, you know, you're perceiving investments as well as founders has, 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 2020 and COVID and and everything that's happened change your investment approach? No, not really. I mean, we still want to invest in great founders solving a problem, $10, $15 billion TAM, good unit economics, path to profitability. You know, look at who are our competitive investments in that space, build a strong cap table and, you know, back those companies. So I don't think that anything changes there. Some of the so there are two things happening. If I look at the existing portfolio, clearly uh, you can see that there are founders who sort of acted, rediscovered, reimagined, made the changes, made the cuts, went back to basics. I think one of the things that we were starting to see that with a lot of capital available, a lot of tech companies were moving away from being tech companies. You know, one of our company had hired 800 people in doing something which technology should actually do. And they realized during COVID that when they were deciding to downsize, the first thing they was they cut those 800 people only to realize they should have never hired them. So I think at some point in time, you, you, can, you know, it's natural, right? You go for holiday, you, you come back two kgs uh, heavier. And so I think that is one thing that, that, that certainly has happened uh, with the existing portfolio that they have gone back to their core. Their competitive intensities have reduced. And they are thinking more fundamental-based businesses, you know, not just profit. I think it's important to balance profit and growth, but the fundamentals of the business is something that they are looking at. But from a COVID perspective, you know, it's interesting because I think some things will permanently change, which will lead to new companies that will get formed. And there will be some things in my mind that will come back, right? I mean, restaurants are already an example of in Singapore, it's hard to get any table. The only thing that's changed in restaurants, by the way, now is that you have to leave after every two hours because they are booked three times over and that may create opportunity for some startup for someone. But I think that we, we when we look at uh, the way people travel will change, right? Asians, for example, have never traveled by road and done camping as much as what happens in the Western world. And I'm seeing startups coming in that space. Alternate medicine, 
is something that Asia is always known for, whether you look at Korean or Japanese, Chinese, Indian Ayurvedic medicine, and it's always been undervalued. And now the, the real world is looking and saying, why are people not dying in these countries? And there's something going on in these forms of medicine. You know, when you look at HR softwares, we've always talked about white-collar workers. But during COVID, we saw the construction workers. These guys are employees. There's no system for them. Millions of workers in India went back into villages. Nobody knows who they are, where they are, which of them should come back, when they come back, what tooling they have. If you talk about an HR software's modules, it is recruiting, talent management, talent development. Apply that to this workforce. You're talking millions of people. Now look at freelance workers. Right now, if you're an insurance agent, you're a freelance worker, you're sitting at home, you have no technology to continue to do your businesses. So I think there are businesses and ideas like that, which have emerged from here, which will permanently remain for long, for where we will see. And these are some of the areas we are looking at investing in some companies. So it sounds like you're quite bullish, actually, uh, about the future. I, I mean, some VC partners have told me privately that, you know, because everyone is open for business, like that's what everyone says, we're open for business, we're looking to invest. And then some people have told me privately that, you know, the issue is that they just don't see great companies. Um, I kind of, like, assuming that's true, I attributed that to, okay, COVID has had such an impact and, you know, founders haven't had the time to adjust yet. But it sounds like you have a slightly different perspective. That you're, you're seeing a lot of exciting opportunities, right? I mean, the difference between us and other VCs is that we, from day one, have taken upon the idea of concentrated investing and creating global build-to-last companies. That's who we are. That's Jungle. First fund, $10 million. We were writing $1 million checks. Nobody writes a million-dollar check. Even when I was an angel investor, my... Angel investments were one to two million dollars, right? For whatever little money I had, so I put that into one or two or three companies. So really, take bets and believe. Very them. sincere yeah. bets, yeah. right? And then you look long term, right? I mean, you be open to to an exit, right? We did patience to Naspers. It was an opportunity to to exit. It made the right sense to do that in India. The competitive landscape was changing, but in the exact same space, we have another company called Credivo. Uh, or Finaxel in, in Indonesia, where we're raising significant amount of money and we're looking at completely building that. So from that perspective, if I'm going to do two or three investments in a year, I think the deal flow is never an issue because with 700 companies, unless the quality of entrepreneur is completely gone. So that has, for now, nothing to do with COVID, right? Because there's still entrepreneurs who have fundamentals of what it takes to build a company sitting on a problem, which will be built over the next 10 years and those companies are still coming in I, and i think so the problem is not the deal though the problem is everybody wants their money right so how do you make sure they take your money yeah it's interesting i was looking through your portfolio and really shines through like uh, when you're scrolling through the companies and halal pops up like twice or like oh yeah this is truly a you know bet right um how do you go about formulating those sort of theses if, if you want to open up the the engine box a bit so what we do is at any point in time we have two or three areas where we think that we would like to invest right and there's a process by which we identify those so for example 
you know, education technology being an area where we've not invested. We did an, a tech company in Australia, a company called Adrola a while ago, and then we, we felt that five years ago, the, the evolution of technology in the education space had played out, and these companies had to take four or five years, and then the next wave of technology companies will come, and we're starting to see that. So, you know, we would then pick that space. So the same thing was with HR tech, right? We looked at HR five years, six years ago and felt that some of the SME plus enterprise-oriented HR companies, there were enough companies out there and we will see, maybe we'll do a late-stage investment. But again, when we started looking at that, we realized that in the the masses, the, the, the construction workers, the blue-collar workers, the real people who actually run our economy, as we saw in Singapore when construction shut down, there's no system. So within that, and we did the same thing with consumer lending. So I think what we do is pick a thesis, build a conviction within that area, what is specific part where we would like to potentially invest, where there's problems to be solved, look at all the companies funded in that ecosystem. If you don't find anything, we don't mind finding an entrepreneur and maybe even incubating it. We did that with Moglix, which is our B2B commerce company in India, where Axel and us took a founder who was working for Google in Singapore, pulled him out, and we said, you know, let's build something in this space. And then uh, essentially go and um, back these companies. And ideally, we would do one in Southeast Asia, and maybe we'll do one in Southeast Asia and one in India in the same space. So there's a lot of learning, there's a lot of sharing, there may be possible synergies over a period of time. Interesting. Yeah. It takes certainly exciting. We just actually did a podcast with the CEO of Kahoot and uh, they've been totally on fire. So uh, And the, the whole workspace was even more interesting that now now that they're using it in corporate. So that, that was... What, what I'm keen to see, and I know a lot of people may not necessarily agree with this, is but I feel over a period of time, EdTech has become more tech, less education. And I think in my mind, there are a few companies that will be built, which will go back and focus on education. And education is about learning. It's about retention. It's about memory. It's about motivation. It's about absorption. It's about calibration of learning based on the, the student. And it's about doing that in tuition classes with 10 students and being able to ensure that each of them are taking what they are taking based on their caliber potential. That's an area we're looking at. The personalized learning part of yeah. using tech. If you have a portfolio company, <laughs> we can invest. Let's see. <laughs> and I, I find it, I wanted to go and talk about like you're doing so many things and, you know, in, in impact investing as well as, um, you know, you started you know, for the listeners, can you tell us about One Billion Bricks? What is the mission? How did it start? I think it's amazing that it started as a non-profit and then it changed into a for-profit. Yeah, so Billion Bricks is actually a foundation that Prasoon, my co-founder, and I started uh, five, six years ago. Prasoon used to work for me in another firm. He's actually an urban planner. He's built amazing homes for rich people and then one day got fed up and said, I got to do homes for people who don't have homes. And I met him and we sat and he had a plan and I said, let's jo join hands. And, and I decided to extend all my resources to him in whatever shape or form. And the mission and the vision was always to end homelessness from this world. And a lot of this came from, you know, my own lower middle class upbringing where I've grown in areas with, uh, you know, a lot of homeless people around. 
But just the fact that I had a roof on my, my, my head, uh, I was able to sort of build a life for myself. And then I saw the same thing when I went to Dharavi, which is the biggest slum in Mumbai, where actually when you go inside, I can see that there are hundreds of entrepreneurs that will come out from that space just because they have a roof on the top, right? They speak English, they're amazingly talented sports people, and they're doing well in their studies, uh, and they have courage and very sort of global determination, right? They look at a Bollywood actor or a cricket actor and they believe that can be them because they relate to them. So the idea was if that's the level of empowerment that people can get, then why not? And that's how we built a billion bricks. And I think the first five years we were, to be honest with you, more focused on learning what is this problem. I mean, who are these homeless people? Where do they live? You go to San Francisco in the evening, you see a lot of them and you wonder where do they come from, right? And, and what's their life? And so I think a lot of work was done. We did a lot of projects. We put 10,000 homeless people off the street during this time. We built our first product, um, which was basically called a weather hide, which was a temporary home. But I think over the last two years or so, it was very clear that this is a VC-funded company thought process that needs to come in that capital and technology will solve this problem and the profit or non-profit is only a structure of the firm. But eventually, an entrepreneur is using technology and capital and doing everything that's needed to solve this problem. And by the way, this is a big problem, much bigger than any e-commerce or any SaaS problem. So that's how we actually decided to change the structure. As far as I'm concerned, personally, all the... Uh, capital benefits that will come from this will be given back to the company. So my uh, my mission there remains that for me this will be a philanthropic thing. But I think it made sense for company in itself to change its structure. And like you say, it's such a big problem. And was that when you shifted gears and looked at it in this scalable way that tech needs to be involved and like from nonprofit to profit, was that when other bigger corporations were interested. Is this is this something that generally in the model of impact or sustainability needs to be, you know, you need to view a big problem as a business as well? Yes, that's true. I mean, if you go to governments and say, we get 5,000 people to be off the street, they're not interested, right? They want a solution which is at massive scale. In fact, in the Power Hide new solution that we are planning to implement, the first pilot project in Philippines, we had a meeting with the government last week and they said, if you 10 times scale the project plan, we are interested. So, you and then NG, which is our energy infrastructure partner, I mean, the, the kinds of projects they do in the scale. And because the problem is anyways at that scale, we said, you know, we got to go back and think bigger. And which is very similar when we talk to our founders at some point in time. When the product market fit has happened, there's substantial invest, in, investor interest, you know, when you think it's a global problem, at some point in time, you sit down at the founder and say, dude, it's time to think big. And that's really what happened with uh, Million Bricks as well. But if we if we bridge that, like the broader impact investing angle, like, you know, is is that something that is a fruitful lane of thinking, like impact investing, or should there just be investing that is like... Um, responsible and leads to solving big problems and, and kind of an efficient capital market almost will, you know, uh, solve things. How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, I think in, in, in investing 
in itself is impactful depending on who it impacts. Then in the process, you choose who you want to impact, right? You want to impact the environment. You could build amazing products in solar and everything else and you can help the environment and you could still be an enterprise. I mean, in Kyot Viet, which is one of our investments in Vietnam, we have like 100,000 mom and pop shops coming onto our platform, getting enabled, building a living for themselves, getting their kids to go to school, turning into entrepreneurs. Now, you know, and that's growing really fast. And if you look at the kind of scale and impact that has, it's no different than potentially what we're trying to do, let's say, in another startup in Milap, where we raise money to to give people so that poor people can actually solve a problem. So I, I think that uh, by and large, uh, you know, IFC is an investor in our fund and they are very, very key on, you know, what sort of impact are you bringing in the developing nations. So if I collectively look at our, our uh, investments and we start classifying impacts and, you know, how, people have got, how many people got jobs and how many people have a home now or how many people school uh, kids' education is, is now paid for and it's a very massive impact. So I, I think I would say that in the core of it, from our perspective in, in jungle, making impact, you know, social impact is core to it. Um, there will be some companies which will help the construction worker to get back from the village and get a job. And there may be another company which is redefining, you know, how people in Microsoft or any such large firm are not going to fall sick because the way their offices are going to be designed post-COVID are going to be different. But at the end of the day, I think the, the common denominator is still impact. No, I, I agree. And the investing part is critical. I personally feel like the impact needs to be inherent in what you do and not like impact investing for the sake of impact. Um, and also, I, you know, there's so many problems with this whole like pure NGO angle. If if you try to do it for long term, there's just this case, um, very fascinating for me in Finland where I'm from, where um, they sort of recycle clothes, and and the idea was that they send it, they send it to, um, you know, somewhere else in in poor part of Europe to to give to you know underprivileged uh, children, right? And then someone put these like micro uh, sensors on the clothes to track where they actually go. There, it's somewhere somewhere completely different. Like fifty percent just got like destroyed, and and like it, it's it's just a in a way, a mess that I, I don't think would really be there if, if you had a bit more like hardcore capitalistic, you know, mechanisms uh, tied to that. So, you know, very much on the same page. So it's time for rapid fire now. What has your proudest moment been? You know, coming from very lower middle class, very small town, I think the proudest moment was when I met my dad and I told him I got selected in... IITs, right? Indian Institute of Technology, which is a premium university. My father never thought I'll make it. You know, 800, I mean, at that time, what, India had 800 million people, 80,000 people write the exam, and only some 1,800 people are selected. So it's, it's a hard one to do. It also, by the way, changed my life. But I think that moment to tell my dad, who was a botanist teacher, that was a proud moment. Um, 
And who's your biggest mentor or role model? You know, Mr. Atantara is someone that I've talked about. In, he's the chairman emeritus of the Tata Sun Startup Group. And he's built four, $500 billion, whatever the, the revenue of Tata Group is now, you know, from making tea to steel and everything in between, cars and, you know, software, hotels. Uh, a man with amazing, you know, humility and integrity. And I think what's even more exciting is that he chose to be our special advisor on our board. So I get to work with him closely. What's the one piece of advice you wish you had received earlier in life? Somebody told me, um, you either win or you learn. So you never lose. So that I learned this <laughs> much later. So I'm using that with my kids now, that you never lose. I think that's, that's something starting to make life more interesting. Okay, so the next one is your motto in life, like what keeps you going? Sounds like maybe it was the previous one, you never lose, but... <laughs> no, I, I think just entrepreneurial, um, uh, it's an amazing experience. I would tell anybody to be an entrepreneur. Uh, it's an amazing experience. And being able to work with these amazing entrepreneurs just keeps you relevant. You know, there's, as you get older... Uh, one thing you always worry about is becoming irrelevant. And you talk about either your crystallized knowledge or intelligence. It's all the knowledge that you've acquired over the years and all your fluid knowledge, intelligence, which is all your ability to innovate. And that starts to decline. And these entrepreneurs are filled with fluid intelligence. They are just innovating. Uh, and that just keeps me going. I mean, I just wake up in the morning and I just go sit in front of one of these founders and it's amazing to, to see that. And you learn uh, and wherever possible, contribute. And what is the kindest thing someone has done for you? I have only one choice there is to say that the kindest thing was my wife married me. This <laughs> <laughs> is the second person who said this on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, she changed my life. She's an amazing woman. She's an amazing entrepreneur. You should have her here one of these days. Um, but yeah, I think that was, there were a lot of odds against, you know, us from being able to get married. and But we pulled it through. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.